Well, it was some time back that we had some folks visit our congregation with us on a Lord's Day morning. And as I always do, I try to follow up with folks who visit if they fill out a visitor card and I send them an email uh, or send them a letter in the mail and just see if uh, there's anything I can help them with as a pastor, try to get to know them a little bit, thank them for their visit. This particular person whom I followed up with, I have received an email back from uh, just about every other week since then for some time. And the email I get back always has kind of a funny message on it and an attachment that they want me to open. Fortunately, I have a son who has studied cybersecurity, and he has told me, don't ever open that email. He tells me that those kinds of emails are designed to actually gain access to my computer to try to infiltrate what is there, and actually to try to gain access to my own contacts and further infiltrate other people's computers that I might correspond with. Now, the person that I receive this email from likely doesn't even know this is happening. I don't suspect that they are nefarious in their intent, and in fact, I wonder if they even know what's going on. But apparently at some point they let somebody access their computer unknowingly and that has now extended to other people to whom they are corresponding or have access to by way of an email address. Well, the little book of Jude, these 25 verses, are like a cybersecurity warning for the church. Jude is writing warning about infiltration. Warning about people that would like to gain access to the Lord's people in order to do harm, in order to muddy the gospel, as it were. And the warning is stern. As we read it, you heard some of the language that Jude uses, and it's very stern. Because he is very passionate about preserving the truth of the gospel. Aren't you at arms over things that you love? Men, if somebody comes into your house at night, an intruder, I would guess your response would not be casual and nonchalant, but would be rather vicious, perhaps? Strong? And this is what Jude is trying to stir all of us up toward as a church, this church, and every church that claims to profess the true gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a stern warning. In fact, it's a strong appeal. He writes in verse 3, I appeal to you to contend for the faith. So the book of Jude is about contending for the faith. And what we find in these 25 verses as a big idea is this, that it is the duty of every genuine believer to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This book was written to you. 
you might tend to think, well, this is a book for theologians, it's a book for pastors, it's for those in places of influence. I want to remind you that this book was written to the laity, to the believer sitting in those chairs. And you're going to discover why throughout the sermon today it is important that you contend for the faith. That you recognize infiltration. And that you're earnest about the gospel. Why does Jude urge us to defend the gospel and defend teaching and living in particular that stems from the gospel? Well, you'll notice that he mentions this. Look at verse 4. He says at the end of verse 3, I want to appeal to you, contend for the faith. And verse 4 begins with this three-letter word, F-O-R. And what he's telling you is, contend because. And verse 4 actually gives us the reasons in his mind that contending is necessary. What are these reasons? He begins by saying, you need to contend for certain people. Now, why would he refer to that? Just certain people. He's not naming names. He's not pointing out particular persons or personalities. But he's saying there are people like this. There are certain people, and here's the characteristics of them. And notice he'll, he'll mention these people, again, not by name, but in reference to them. Verse 4, he says, for certain people have done something. Look down at verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also do certain things. Verse 10, these people blaspheme Verse 12, these are like hidden reefs, etc. Verse 14, it was actually about these that Enoch, all the way back from Adam, prophesied. Verse 16, these people are grumblers. Verse 19, it is these who cause what? Division. Now, what we're going to discover this morning and the kind of things we're going to discuss this morning are often brought up among Christian people, and they would say things like this. What we're going to discuss this morning, there would actually be people that would find this on the Internet somewhere and say, I'm being divisive. I'm, I'm making too big a deal about certain things and actually fracturing the Christian church. And what I want you to know is that what Judah's saying is these people are the ones who are divisive. They are departing from what has always been held among God's people. And it's these certain people, we won't put names on them today, but I think you'll recognize their character as we go through this. Remember, these are the ones that are being divisive among the Lord's people. So what is the character of these people? We're going to look at three things. I think we'll only get through two of them this morning, probably the third one next week, Lord willing. I want to look at their position within the church. Who are these certain people? It's necessary for every believer to contend for the faith because of certain people. Who are these certain people? We're going to look at their position within the church. We're going to note their perversion of God's grace. And finally... Next week, Lord willing, 
we will look at their dismissal of Christ's authority. And you can see that. It's coming right out of verse 4. He says, for there are certain people, here's their position within the church, they've crept in unnoticed, but long ago they're designated for this condemnation. They're ungodly people. And then they do these two things in particular, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And secondly, they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Who are these people? What are they teaching? Well, let's examine this in closer detail today. Let's ask the Lord for help as we do, all right? Let's pray. Lord, would you give us your mind about uh, these things that we look at from your word today? Help us to receive these things as the words of God and not merely the words of man. And that, Lord, we would all be in earnest about guarding our own heart and in earnest about living in a way that honors you and honors the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jude is very concerned about certain people because of their position within the church. If you'll notice verse 4, he says that these certain people have crept in unnoticed. There's actually two words there that tells us they're marked by subtlety. They're creeping and in a way that is unnoticeable. They're gaining access by a means by which they're not forthright and upfront, but trying to come in the back door, as it were. Creeping in, trying to be unnoticed in order that they might infiltrate. How did this happen? Well, in Jude's day, it was likely the work of itinerant ministers that would travel from congregation to congregation in the first century churches. And there they would, in private conversations in homes, and then perhaps subtly through what they taught in the churches, maybe in smaller house meetings, striving in some way to twist what was being taught in a way that would benefit them. And even so, in a way that would bring contempt, as it were, as James, as Judah mentioned, upon the gospel. And I just want to remind us that this has always been the case, and it is the case in any truly gospel-preaching ministry. Jude is not writing to churches who have turned from the gospel, what we would call liberal theology today. He's writing to people who hold our common salvation, according to verse 3, that teach the truth of the gospel, that understand the fundamental doctrines of the faith. And he's writing to them and saying, be careful, in churches like that, there's a tendency for people to creep in, and they try to do so in a way that's unnoticed in order to promulgate their doctrine. Jude notes that these people are not novel, that this has actually been going on for centuries. Look at what else he says in verse 4. They they have crept in, they're among the church, they're unnoticed, but who long ago were designated for this condemnation. 
So even though they are among God's people, they will face condemnation because they're not really a part of God's people. Although visibly, they seem to be among God's people. And Jude goes on and he gives now Old Testament examples millennia before Jude even lived to demonstrate this. And this is what the bulk of his letter does. For instance, look at what he does in verse 5. He says, I want to remind you that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, what's he talking about there? He's talking about the Exodus and Moses leading those people out of Egypt back in the book of Exodus. But notice he says that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not what? You would think everybody that left Egypt with Moses was a part of the people of God. And he's going to give this example and he's going to say, but they not all of them were. In fact, many of them didn't believe. And it became known in their condemnation. He gives other Old Testament examples. Look at verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. What's he talking about here? God created the angels. You would think the angelic company, that all of them would be confirmed in righteousness. But he says, even among the angelic host, there were imposters. Those who turned from that righteous state and were expelled from heaven. You can see he's just giving examples of of people among you who you think might be a certain way, but really aren't. In verse 7, he speaks of the condemnation of people like this. It's like Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's how God feels about what they're involved in. In particular, their, their sexual immorality. And he reminds us of the punishment of eternal fire, the fire that rained down on that place. And so he gives these three Old Testament examples, verses 5, 6, and 7. And then in verse 8, he applies it. Yet in like manner, these people also are just like this. This is how Jude lays out his argument. And he does the same thing again. Look at verse 11. He says, woe to these kinds of people. Why? They walk in the way of Cain. There's an Old Testament example. They abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam. There's another Old Testament example. And they perish in Korah's rebellion. There's three more Old Testament examples. Jude really has a thing for threes. And he gives these Old Testament examples, and then he again applies it, verse 12. So these among you are like hidden reefs at your love feast. And he goes on and he talks about them. He says, Enoch talked about these people. Not only these Old Testament examples, but also Enoch, this seventh from Adam, we're told in verse 14. It was about these people that Enoch prophesied and had something to say. And finally, look at verse 17. He says, You must also remember, beloved, the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ had something to say about these people among you who aren't really with you. You can see he's he's piling on these examples of people who infiltrate and seem to be a part of something, but really they have no part at all. If you go back to verse 4, This is their position among the church. They 
They are marked by subtlety, and, but they aren't novel. There's always been this kind of mixing of, of the visible people of God with the invisible people of God. And, and how do you sort that out? And finally, he just says in verse 4 that these are ungodly people. What is an ungodly person? It's someone that lives life as if there is no God, that they are God. I am God. I answer to nobody. That's an ungodly person. And I so appreciate the way that Wayne emphasized that in the 15th verse because Jude just piles this on. They are ungodly people and all of their ungodliness and ungodly sinners. And and he just keeps coming back to that. These people have no awareness of God. They may say they do with their lips, but when you look at their life, they could care less. Now again, beloved, I want to remind you that we are not talking about people in other Christian circles who do not preach the gospel. Jude is warning about people in churches like Heritage Baptist Church. Right in our midst. And other gospel preaching conservative churches in our communities. Every true gospel preaching ministry must be aware of this. And beloved, perhaps at no other time in history has it been easier for people to infiltrate the church. How do people gain access to the church today? Remember, in Jude's time, it was itinerant ministers that would have to come and be put up, and people would come and maybe hear them, and they would have private conversations. Today, we live in an unprecedented time of communication ability. It's always been, in my lifetime, television, radio, books, magazines, flyers, conferences... But just in the last 20 to 30 years now, it's the internet and podcasts and blogs, and you carry these things around with you in your pocket all the time. And now there is an unprecedented ability for people outside the church to access those within the church in order to perpetrate what they want you to hear. Quite honestly, pastoring in the 21st century is perhaps more challenging than it ever has been. Because if people don't like what you say on Sunday, they just listen to what everybody else said the rest of the week and say, well, I prefer this. And the opportunity for false teachers to influence the church is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And that's why Jude says, you contend for the faith. Not pastor, not theologian. I don't know of any other time in history when it has been more incumbent upon the people sitting in that pew or chair to examine what you're hearing and contend for what is right and for what is true. And that brings us to this. What are they teaching? 
What's the teaching we should be aware of? Now, I'm certain that most of you in this room, if you heard someone come and preach another gospel to you, something that was different than the true gospel of Jesus Christ, you would pick up on it in some regard and say, that's not right. But the thing that Jude is dealing with is not so much that these people are teaching an entirely different gospel. It's the fact that they take what is true about the gospel and they pervert it or twist it. They twist it that results in a different way of living. Look at how he says this. Look at verse 4. He says, these are ungodly people who pervert or literally twist the grace of our God into what? Sensuality. What these people do, there's a perversion of God's grace. How do they pervert the grace of God? I like the way the New International Version translates this. It says, they pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. Because that's what the term sensuality means. You may have a translation that speaks of lasciviousness or licentiousness. We don't use that word anymore. I think our ESV does an excellent job of translating this as sensuality, and literally it's talking about sexual immorality. And what Jude has encountered is the teaching of, of cheap grace in the church that somehow makes it okay to even overlook sensuality or immorality, that somehow grace covers all of that, and it's twisted. Now, how would that happen? You say, how can that possibly be the case? Well, let me just go through with you and see what the Bible does teach us about the grace of God. You don't need to turn there, but, but what is God's grace? I have it on the screen for you. In Acts 20, 24, the Apostle Paul, in speaking to the Ephesian elders, leaders of the church at Ephesus, he said this, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, the good news of God's grace. What is God's grace? What makes it good news? How is it twisted? Well, I think the book of Romans really helps us here. Go to Romans chapter 5. Because Paul's actually addressing this issue. We're going to look at several passages this morning, and I'd like you to turn to them. It will help you to follow the argument. Romans chapter 5, and notice with me verse 19. The Bible says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. I know we're jumping right into context, but just answer me. Who's being referred to in verse 9? Who's the one man who disobeyed and thereby all are sinners? Who's that? That's Adam, the first man we read of him in Genesis chapter 3. And so there's this comparison in verse 9. As by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Who's the second man in the verse? 
It's Jesus Christ by his obedience to all of God's law, his obedience to laying down his life and the will of God. Many will be made righteous. So you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Now notice what he says. Look at verse 20. Now the law came to increase the trespass. The trespass being referred to in verse 20 is Adam's trespass. Adam sinned in the garden. And when Adam sinned, we all sinned with him. That's made clear if you look at verse 12 of Romans 5. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, that's the penalty, so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned past tense. All sinned with Adam. That's why everybody dies. We're all sinners. And so in verse 20 he says, the law came in, this is after the time of Adam, when Adam lived in the garden, he had one law, don't eat of the tree, and he violated that law. But he says, after that, God's law came in. Think of Exodus and the Ten Commandments and even the other laws that God gave there. He says, and they came in to increase the trespass. And what he means is this, those other laws came in in order that everybody would know they're a sinner. That everybody would know they sinned in Adam and possess that sin nature because when the law of God comes in and says, don't cross this line, what do you want to do? I mean, how do you like it when you leave the parking lot today and you're driving down 93 and it says the speed limit is 55? And you say, that's ridiculous. I can do 80 and be fine. Everybody else is, right? There's something that that law does to me that says, I don't need to obey that law. And this is what is being stated here. The law of God came in later to increase the trespass or to demonstrate the depravity of us all. That we are sinners. There is something in me that runs from God and doesn't want to do what is right and obey his law. But look at verse 20. But where sin increased because of the law, grace abounded all the more. The law came in to exacerbate my sin nature, as it were, and stir it up. But it says, but God's grace came in, and that overabounding sin because of that law, it abounded over all of that. So verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. And what he's saying is this. Sin once reigned under the law unto death, but now grace reigns. We are now living in a day in which God's grace reigns. How do you know that? Because when you came to church today, my friend, you didn't come toting your goat for a sacrifice. You didn't come examining the law. And I'm not up here expounding to you the 613 commands in the Old Testament that are God's righteous ways that you must follow. But you came with a full assurance that having come to faith in Christ, your sins are covered. And I come today preaching to you, draw near to God through Christ. 
And if you do so, you'll find grace and mercy in your time of need. And we don't have, here's how to, here's what to, do this, don't do this. It's the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So draw near through him. And this is what Paul is explaining in verse 21. So sin reigned in death. There was this constant awareness of the law and my condemnation. But now we are in a time when God's grace reigns. And our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven in Christ. And his grace superabounds over all of our sin. Now, that is the truth of the gospel, the bedrock truth of the gospel. But let me ask you, does grace, that kind of grace, accommodate sinful living? Because I'm forgiven, and I'm under grace, and there are no specific laws. I can live however I want. That might be the conclusion that some people draw, and that's why I look at chapter 6 and verse 1. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? See what he's saying? Okay, if God's grace covers my sin and I'm under God's grace, then I should sin more because I get more grace and make it more bountiful. Is that the right conclusion? And what's his answer according to verse 2? By no means, he says, That's a horrendous conclusion because grace has actually set you free from sin and delivered you from its shackles. Now, I believe that there's times in churches and especially in the early church where this kind of teaching was promoted. Let me show you one of those. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 1. Paul's addressing a group of believers who believe the gospel. They've heard the gospel. And here's what he says to them. Chapter 5, verse 1, 1 Corinthians. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Paul's saying is, I can hardly believe my ears that there's this kind of immorality going on among you, even a kind of incestuous relationship that even pagan people aren't involved in, and yet it's right in your midst. And look what he says in verse 2. And you're arrogant about it. I cannot speak dogmatically, but I tend to think the arrogance was this. It's God's grace. We're under grace. It's not a big deal. Paul says in verse 2, you should rather mourn over this. And you should deal with it. Because that's going to affect the whole body like leaven leavens the lump. You see, beloved, there is a way to twist the graciousness of God and His grace that covers all of our sin and to think of it in a way that actually can promote 
a loose kind of living that even engenders sensuality among God's people. You see, the grace of God is intended to train us and instruct us about certain things. Look at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, we read this, for the grace of God has appeared. And what he's talking about is God's grace in Jesus Christ, this one who would free us from sin, whose blood would cover our sin. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. It brings salvation for all people. It's available for all. Training us. God's grace trains us to do what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Those are worldly lusts. It's desires for sensual things of this world. The grace of God is actually intended to teach us about those things and to deliver us from those things. Well, what does the grace of God teach us about these things? Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Again, I'm doing my very best this morning, beloved, just to let the Bible speak for itself. What does God's grace teach us in particular about worldly lusts or sensual living? Look at Ephesians 4 and verse 17. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, those who hold our common salvation... And he's saying in verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you, if you have been saved, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. When he refers to Gentiles, he's referring to unbelieving people. He says, you shouldn't be living like people who don't know the grace of God. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart because because they've rejected God their heart becomes hearted and then they're alienated from him now look at this verse 19 they have become calloused what's a callous I'm pretty proud of myself I have a couple because I've been doing some digging in my yard right usually I have soft pastor hands but I got a couple of calluses because I've gotten my shovel out and I've, I've done some hard digging and there's some rough spots right there, but with repeated wearing, there's roughness there. This is the idea. These people have become callous to what? It's demonstrated because they have given themselves up to what? Sensuality and greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Beloved, tell me, does that not typify our world today? They are calloused with regard to sexual immorality. It's everywhere. Things that used to make people blush are shouted on the rooftops and put out everywhere. There's a callousness to that. And what the scripture is saying is this. God's grace 
delivers you from that. That you would not be so calloused. That you would call it out for what it is. A perversion. Immorality. Indecency. Impurity. Now how does our society and our world promote this kind of callousness to make sensuality run as the bloodstream through our culture and even spill over right into our congregations. Well, don't take my word for it. There's a man who wrote a book on this. His name is Kent Hughes. He wrote the book 20 years ago. And Kent Hughes pastored a church in Illinois for many years. And when he was about ready to resign, he wrote this book, and I'm sure did a series of sermons on it, The book's entitled, Set Apart. I'm sure at the end of his ministry, he's looking out at his congregation and he's seeing the infiltration of a sensuality among his people and he's trying to call it out. And in his book, Hughes has this to say. He says, there is a great disconnect between what Christians believe and how they live. What they say they believe about the gospel and God's grace, and yet how they live. See, he's saying there's like a a twisting here. Then he says, here is how the world in our day promotes sensuality that actually captures our minds and influences the church. He says today there's the fashion industry. He says if you don't think the fashion industry is trying to promote sensuality, just try to go shopping for your teenage daughter clothing. He says it's hard for young women to find clothes that are stylish but not degrading and sensual. This is 20 years ago. He's saying this is people who are calloused to sensuality and in fact they're promoting it. He talks about the beauty industry. He says the beauty industry teaches us that you can't be happy without the body that you desire. Therefore, you must constantly be working on that perfect body or you'll never be happy. And he says that streams through our society and, and the deleterious effects on young people and young women in particular are, are quite devastating. But it's this constant promotion of sensuality. He says there's more of the body industry. He says it feeds on insecurities and it's something that is promoted through implants and liposuction and plastic surgery and excessive emphasis on these things. He says it's a kind of a vibe in our culture that says this is what's really important. Finally, Hughes says, then there's the sin industry. It's easy for us to look out on all the world and say, well, that's, yeah, all those bad things out there. But he said, don't we understand that these things actually are right in our own heart? And the reason they attract people out there is because they have a heart for those things. But sometimes those heart attitudes are right among the people of God. And the grace of God is twisted 
to even accommodate those things. Because the Bible never says how long or how tight or how loose or how short. Therefore, don't come to me with your issues. This is a man 20 years ago calling this out. Now, what he's not saying is cosmetics, all of that is evil. Don't misunderstand me. But an inordinate pull on those things and desires will accommodate a sensual heart. Because after all, what is the real issue? Well, look at Mark chapter 7. Look at verse 14. And he, that is Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? <clears throat> Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? In particular, these things, verse 19, since it enters not his heart, but his what? <clears throat> his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. There are some people who would say, see, Jesus is saying it's not anything outside of you, it's what's inside of you, that's the real issue. And I would just remind you that Jesus is talking about things that go into the stomach and not the heart. There are things outside of you that shoot straight for your heart. And you better beware of those things. Verse 20, <clears throat> but Jesus said, it's what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, here's our word, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile the person. The Lord Jesus Christ identifies this issue of sensuality as being a heart issue. And the only way to deliver us from this is through a heart change. When the grace of God comes into a person's life and saves them, it doesn't just save them from hell, it saves them from the grips of sin and the grip of sensuality. Now, perhaps there are people here or under the sound of my voice and you're saying, but the sensuality in our culture is rampant. It hits us at every mark. The temptations are great. I often fall. And how I want to encourage you this morning is this. 
It is indeed true that in our thoughts and through our eyes, sensuality is everywhere. But there is a big difference between simply giving in and succumbing to it and even looking for it and fighting against it. And even when I fall to repent and turn and come back, there's a world of difference between those things. And what Jude is warning about in his little epistle is this. It's actually people that come into the church and they pervert this truth about God's grace and how great it is. And they pervert it to the degree that they make it feel like it's okay for you to be sensual. It's fine. God doesn't say anything about that. It's covered. And what Judah's warning is that that's a kind of infiltration that can happen in any church that holds our common salvation. And it twists the gospel. Why? Because God's grace is to change your heart and deliver you from those things. And when I'm delivered from those things and I'm living in a way that is not sensual, or drawing attention in inordinate ways, I'm displaying God's transforming grace in my life. I've been freed from that. According to James, the ministry of certain persons overthrows that message of deliverance from sensuality. Therefore, he says, be aware, and you must contend, and you must, in your heart of hearts, decide how are you going to live? What will you do? Salvation is the power of God delivering people not just from hell, but from sin. And this is the grace of God to us all. Let's pray together.